the nonprofit MBA purpose is to provide new business insights and fresh creative ideas for executive directors and their teams that will help them improve their organization. Here is your host, Stephen Holastic. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Holastic, and I am co-founder and managing partner of Financing Solutions. Financing Solutions is the leading provider of lines of credit to small nonprofits in the United States. Our line of credit program is easy, inexpensive, and costs nothing until used, making it a great cash backup plan for your nonprofits. Um, I will let our listeners know we've been in business for 12 years. I can't tell you how many times I have clients say thank you. And I'm being honest with you. Thank God I got this line of credit in place. It's just a really smart business move to have it there. Even if you never use it, if you never use it, it doesn't cost you anything. And when you do use it, you'll be like, oh, I'm glad I have this. And usually, honestly, it's to solve a major problem, which is often payroll, which you can't miss payroll, both legally and morally, honestly. Um, And if you'd like to learn more about the program, please visit us at nonprofitmbapodcast.com. And if you decide to apply today, we will even give you a $250 credit on file. Or feel free to give us a call at 862-207-4118. Just remember, the time to set up your line of credit is now, not when the emergency actually comes up. Today, I am very excited to be speaking with Chad Barger from Productive Fundraising. Uh, Chad is a sought-after nonprofit fundraising speaker, master trainer, and coach. Chad owns the firm Productive Fundraising, which specializes in teaching the latest research-based fundraising tactics and making them approachable for small, community-based nonprofit organizations. Chad, welcome to today's Nonprofit MBA podcast. Thanks, Stephen. It's great to be here. So today's uh, podcast, uh, I mean... You know, every single podcast I could do, I know I usually could sit there and talk for two or three hours. Well, at least ask good questions and listen for two or three hours. Um, But this is another one, of course. Uh, Today's topic is recalibrating fundraising events now, regardless of what the future brings. So over the last two years, because of COVID, you know, what has transpired with fundraising events? So... Yeah, I mean, we've gone all over the place with events. So, you know, when COVID first hit, you know, the question was, well, what does this, what do I do with my events? Uh, What do I have to do? And then when quarantine hit, it was very obvious we couldn't do those immediate events. But then the question became, well, what about events this summer or fall? And, you know, we went in this big process from canceling events to postponing events to trying virtual events and now maybe trying hybrid events. And there's been this whole evolution. And what I found with, you know, the small organizations I work with is that many kind of stood on the sidelines and some have started to dabble back in, but nobody's really thinking long term and the big picture of where do I want my events to end up? When all of this is over or in whatever the new reality is, how do I want my events to be structured in my overall fundraising program? And through this conversation today, I really just think we have a big opportunity to take a look at that and structure them for what's best for our organization now, not what we're being handed and kind of forced into by the greater community. Yeah, I, I just I can't imagine like. There's a lot of things we've learned during COVID, right? A lot of the, the, the virtual uh, uh, things. I, 
some of it's really going to stick, but I just can't see virtual events for fundraising sticking going forward unless your fundraising happens on a national basis and you're getting donations from all over the United States. Uh, that to me would make a lot of sense. Uh, 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 agreed? Um, somewhat. I, I, that's originally what I thought too. You know, virtual is just going to be this temporary solution. People will humor us with them when we can't do our normal things to still support us, but then they're going to want to come back in person. And I had um, a couple clients um, when COVID was, you know, very low early this fall that did some smaller in-person events. And each of them had a few donors that reached out and said, you know, remember last year uh, when we couldn't do the gala and instead you sent me a care package, a bottle of wine, you dropped it off on my door, whatever we did. And then I just tuned in from my couch and watched the sommelier do the wine tasting. And I still paid you the $500. Wow. I want to do that again. That's um, cool. So, you know, if, if you had an interesting event, um, people, I think we've just become homebodies. And some of us have decided we like that. Yeah. Um, so, but, so there's that group that likes that. But what we've tried to do now is to pull that group into our in-person through these hybrid events. And some people think that means just putting a camera up in the back of the room. That doesn't work. You know, I find all these hybrid events, somebody is getting a lesser experience, whether it's the in-person or the virtual folks. And I'm more and more thinking, you know, when we go back to regular events, maybe including some type of virtual event throughout the course of the year for that group that wants it. Um, and not trying to just wedge them in to our existing. Yeah, you're right. I, I agree. Uh, you know, the, the reason why it's been more of an issue is that I, the other day, I, I think it was for the first time, I went to a conference that was all online. I was looking forward to it. It was a, you know, uh, I, for two weeks, I was kind of looking forward to the conference. I was covering a topic that I thought was topics that I thought was going to be really, really good. And, um, and so I get on my computer. I'm like, this is great. While I'm doing that, while I'm watching this conference, I can just keep keep up to date with my email. Right. And I didn't hear one word that was said. You know, I and I walked away from the conference after it was all over. I'm like, you know, here, here, here are my notes. Right. The, the, you know, three things. I had three things on there of a whole day of a conference. And I don't even remember what the L.A. said. And and I was like, oh. I'm never going to, you know, I'm not going to be able to do a conference virtually. I'm going to have to go to it. Now, what, I don't know what the difference is, quite honestly, because when I go to the conference, I do have my phone there. And, I, you know, but I, I don't know, having the computer there, I guess I could be, I was multitasking and everything like that. It was just very, uh, it was very a, a new and experienced to me, the th thought that, ooh, in-person events. And I'm not a home buddy, but, you know, so, I mean... You know what? So let me ask you this question. Let's use that term home buddy because I wanted to ask you this before. Statistically, is there any idea what percentage of people are quote unquote home buddies? I don't know that statistic. I don't know if we've ever actually even really pulled that. Um, I mean, we could kind of look at the introvert extrovert 
dynamic yeah. um, where I think we're kind of roughly 50-50. Um, you know, there's even people I identify as an extrovert, but really, if you look at it, I'm kind of a extroverted introvert. I like yeah. that engagement, but when I need to recharge, you know, I escape by myself to the woods for a long hike and yeah. don't want any interaction. Um, and and I just, we've all had more time to explore that side of ourselves. And um, it'd be interesting to see if that dynamic shifts a little bit um, after we come out of this. Where yeah, we, and we I'm don't a want quite as much I, social interaction. Yeah, I, I, and on, on, I'm a 90%, 95%, well, 99% extrovert. And yet, what I what's been amazing is how I get the people feel through video conferencing. Okay. I I actually feel good about meeting people through video conferencing. So I don't have to touch them and shake their hands and stuff. You know, do I prefer to get out there? Yes, because right now I can only meet with you. Right when you're right. at a conference, you're meeting with a lot of different people, and that's to me that's very fun. So I think it, I, the reason I bring that up as a, uh, a, a, a subject matter is I think you're, you're hitting the nail right on the head that, that, you know, I think now you have to cater to two different types of people. Right. Yeah, it's certainly made it more difficult. And, you know, when we try to simplify it and, and shove them together, we just lose both audiences. Um, I, I, I talked to a lot of you know, organization heads that say, you know, I can't wait till we can get rid of these virtual events, go back to normal. And I say, wait a minute, look at that virtual event. You held that event. It probably took a little less time to organize, not a lot less time. You probably had more attendees or at least had more reach and you probably had lower expenses. You know, your net was better for less effort. Why do you want to get rid of this thing? Um, maybe just making it fit better into the overall scope of what we do, maybe tie it a little more to our mission. But I think they're a tool for the future. We just have to make it the right fit for our organization. You know, and you gave us such a great example of uh, when you use the wine sommelier example. That was fun, creative. Yep, right like if I heard that and I was sitting down with my glass of wine, or I'd be like, and you know what? You know what? It kind of crossed my mind. I was like, oh, this nonprofit, they got their act together. <laughs> this is fun. This is different. This is creative. I really, and and boy, what a good time to ask someone for money when they've gotten a little drunk. <laughs> you know, you're like, wow, this is great. There was a fun to cause at the end. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, let me, I'll walk you through that one just to give folks a little deeper idea of what it was. Uh, this was a real life event. Um, so they had, uh, I think about 80 um, attendees, 80 couples, families, whatever, uh, 80 groups. Um, so the week before the uh, staff and the board dropped off these boxes on everybody's front door. Um, so they didn't have to deal with shipping alcohol. Um, it was about, you know, like a $60 um, package, uh, two nice bottles of wine and some snacks. Um, they all had the Zoom link to tune in, um, and the sommelier kind of walked them through the tasting. They played a video about the organization. They talked for like five minutes. Um, there was a beneficiary that spoke with an appeal. Um, and then they uh, all came on video if they wanted at the end. Uh, they were told they could wear their pajamas, and they did a live toast um, to the organization. Um, it was as simple wow. as that. And it was still the $500 that would go to their gala. And what was their cost? You know, 60 bucks in time. 
Yeah. Not the 120 for the rubber chicken dinner at the hotel. Yeah. And how did, how did the, how did the fundraising go? Uh, the fund cause went well. I mean, it was the group, um, you know, a little smaller than their normal gala. Uh, so it was a lot of their core people. Many of them had been to it before. They knew what was coming, so they were still prepared. And uh, the fund cause, you know, worked great. Um, they could, they actually did it uh, via text pledges and um, worked awesome. So have you found that the executive directors or the fundraising person in charge of fundraising at the nonprofit um, have adopted well to these new ideas of virtual fundraising? Um, I, hmm. It's really a mix for me. I kind of see like there's almost no middle ground. You either really hate them and want to go back or you're, you see the value and, and understand that this is going to fit in and you kind of don't really want to do the in-person event that takes so much more work. Um, but I think we all kind of need to come to that middle ground and, and realize there's, there's a place for both. Um, I kind of back up as I think about it to what is really the primary purpose of a fundraising event. And I think this is part of the issue here is that everybody thinks the primary purpose is raising money. And I'll agree that that's a purpose. It's a fundraising event, not a friend raising event. So we are trying to raise money. But what I'm always trying to do through a fundraising event is to reach out to new individual donors. So it's our primary, it's our easiest way in my mind of attracting new folks. You know, it's something public. Um, it's something our current supporters can invite somebody else to. It's fun. Um, it gets publicity. Whereas, you know, our mailing, um, you know, doing an acquisition mailing and getting 1% response rate, you know, yeah. I would rather, uh, so focusing these events on what can we do to attract new donors and empower our current donors to invite new donors to join us through the event. And having both an in-person and virtual options for that, I think makes that even more effective. Yeah, I, I have two things to add to that, to your, to your comments too. Uh, the first one is, um, I think it, it you, you underestimate the, the way it invigorates the internal staff in your organization, about your organization, that you're doing creative things. I think that's the first thing. You know, I think, you know, you're doing the same thing over and over and over again, as, as much as you like the productivity over it, you know, the internally, if you're doing these new and creative ideas that honestly can probably be implemented pretty easily, it helps your staff really continue to love the, your organization. And the second thing is, and I hope I know this isn't a long about way of getting to my point, but the second thing is, so one of my closest friends is going for his doctorate. And he wrote a uh, he, he wrote this dissertation about how the middle of everything is going away, and um, and so you, you said something to me about fifty percent of the executive directors or fundraisers are all in favor of this, and the other fifty percent are like, oh, when are we going to go back to in person events and you know that type of thing? In essence, there you know there is no middle, right? And um, and I also see how the the country in general, the United States, has fallen in those to that same thing. In that fifty percent of the people use technology and are moving forward, 
and the other 50% are really being left behind and uh, so to speak, and, and it really causes a lot of problems. So, you know, I think that if you, I think it's all obvious that if you're not going to embrace the new technology, you're going to be left behind. And, it, you know, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's almost an expectation anymore. Um, and what, you know, through these virtual events, through the other, um, you know, just fundraising in general, moving more digital through COVID because we had to. Remember when we were afraid to touch the mail in the beginning and some of us left it like in the garage to disinfect itself for a week? Um, you know, so everybody went digital and uh, we actually saw like a 20% increase in digital in one year, which is unheard of. You know, it's usually like in the five to 8% growth range. So when we did that, we proved to donors that we can do it. You know, we're not um, lowly nonprofits that have no budget, can't do the, the digital and invest in technology. We had to, we found a way. Um, and we also showed them that, you know, it's safe. It's okay. It's a decent experience. You don't have to mail in the check, um, these type of things. So that's there. I mean, we all kind of were forced to come on board and donors saw it and they were forced to come on board too. Yeah. I, I also thought about this one idea and that is like, I have two kids. Right. And, um, and so, you know, when I, I don't feel, I don't have the time to figure out something out. Let's say on my phone. Right. I give it to one of my kids and I say, just figure this out for me. Right. And it's not that I can't do it. I just don't want to spend an hour or two researching it and figuring it out when they'll do it in five seconds. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of like the same way. I mean, I just think, that an executive director or a fundraising person just bring it, bring someone like Chad in, <laughs> just bring it in, right? Because he's gonna, he's gonna have the turnkey solution, right? Um, right? You know, and it's just gonna save you so much time, you know. And then you get introduced to it, and it's probably gonna be really easy the second time around, right? Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, that's what I love to do: teach, and then you know how to do it, and then I'll go teach somebody else, and then we yeah. just kind of grow together that way um, for sure yeah, and especially because i would have never thought of the wine idea i don't think I, I mean, i'm very creative but i don't i don't think i would have thought of the the wine idea and that's a really cool idea you know yeah it's amazing how creative people were through all of this and um you know and i always say you don't have to reinvent the wheel just find somebody doing something creative in a market other than yours and do it you know uh, it's kind of the best form of flattery uh, it's just mimic that event yeah, the other thing that's really good is, yeah, the other thing that's good too, I, I've always found when you bring a consultant in, right, the the advantage that they have is they're working with all of these other organizations. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you're getting access to all these different ideas that came not just from your consultant, but from all the clients that he's worked with. And I, you know, that's really, cause you can't as, you know, as a executive director, you can't go out there and do that. You know, maybe when you go to conferences, you get some new ideas, but really that's what Chad, you're doing for people, correct? Right. Yeah. And I think if you identify um, a consultant or coach that really works in your niche in organizations like yours. So I work almost exclusively with small organizations and I have a big focus in public libraries and museums. 
So when I go into a new library and they say, oh, we're thinking about this event, uh, what should we do? You know, I have 15 potential events that I've seen actually work in similar organizations in another part of the country. Wow. So you have standard, like, is the wine one a, a go-to one for you? Um, I wouldn't call it a go-to. Um, I, I think it works for some organizations um, that are virtual resistant. Um, it's it's a fairly easy one to pull off. And that model can be slightly adapted. Um, you know, I've seen it with, um, like, cheesecake tasting and, you know, f- Exclusive experiences and food and drink have always been, you know, kind of the two keys to a successful event. That's what people love to do. That's what they do in their free time normally. So how do we kind of infuse that? So almost all events will have some combination of those two. Something I can't do on my own. I can't just go buy and some kind of unique or higher end uh, food and drink experience. Um, It's always a great formula. Are there, you know what? On the for-profit side, I, are you seeing companies do this? Are you seeing a company like using this as not not just for one product, but for a hundred, you know, a lot of different products? Where they're using this model of tasting to have people buy more of the product. Um, I. Perhaps in some some niche areas, I haven't seen that. I haven't um, seen it kind of on a mass yeah. market level. Yeah, um, where I know <laughs> this model did go to the corporate side is with corporate retreats. So they weren't able to, you know, take their people to the Bahamas and let them relax and you know have one hour of meetings in the morning and then everybody be on the beach and do all of that. So instead, they did some of these types of experiences. Um, they'd even have like celebrities come on and and you know, zoom and do those kind of things. So we did see a lot of, of crossover that way. Um, but no, I haven't, haven't seen it go mass market. So if you had to look pa- back at the past year, well, if you look back at the past year, how many virtual events did, did you do? Um, I don't personally run them, but I right. certainly coached, um, ooh. Oh, it's probably pushing 50 um, because they did one, realized it was pretty simple and realized they could do them more frequently and they couldn't engage donors any other way. So a lot of them did. um, Some of them would do like a recurring series of whatever it was, you know, um, animal bingo and uh, various other things that, you know, their people liked it. It was still back. when we weren't really doing anything and people were bored. So it became their entertainment. Um, Those days have kind of faded. I don't think people are really turning to that for um, entertainment purposes anymore, but there was a run there, um, especially last winter uh, when, (laughs) wow, you could get virtual audiences to show up. So through this learning experience for you um, of the virtual events, because I guess COVID really initiated the, this whole trend, right? Um, What have you learned about virtual events? Let's start off with the good stuff. Like, tell me what you've learned that's all good. 
Yeah, so for me, it's really the accessibility and the reach piece that that is huge here. Um, you know, we always struggled with, you know, maybe we could only fit 150 people into our venue. Uh, maybe our venue wasn't handicap accessible. Uh, maybe a portion of our donor base doesn't like to drive at night. Like there are all these reasons for people not to come. Instantly, that barrier goes away. Um, so that accessibility piece is key. Um, and then I already said the revenue piece. A lot of times they have, you know, the same revenue um, and lower expense. And uh, if people are doing this smart, they can actually even get more revenue in the form of additional sponsor revenue. If we're having more reach with our event, both in the pre-publicity, the people attending, then our sponsor revenue should be higher. They're getting a lot more value than they would just reaching the 150 people that's normally in the room. Now they're reaching 1,500 people through the event. Um, so that has definitely, I think, two key upsides that more people can attend, everyone can attend, and there's the potential for more revenue if we structure it correctly. And the, the people that have run very successful events, have you seen some commonalities in what they do that you could share with us that said, you know, these are the characteristics that I've seen of very, very successful events? Not, not the event. Well, yeah, the event. It could be the event. It could be the person. Either one. Right. So I kind of have said um, you're not... I said in the beginning, you're not just putting up a camera in the back of the room and running your event like you normally would do. I think of it as a, you know, 30 to 45 minute TV show. Um, and it's not a dry documentary. It's this mix of like sitcom, a little bit of documentary, emotional appeal, some fun, some engagement, some way I can do something in the chat, uh, text, somehow I can participate. Um, and the ones that do it well, they're hiring help. Um, take some of that money that you would have on food costs and invest in video firms, conference providers. They all did the giant pivot and they're experts at this now. Um, there's folks that have COVID safe studios set up in warehouses where you are separate from the tech team. Uh, it's a professional set. You can go in there and do your five minutes. Um, that should be pre-recorded, and they're just going to play it at the right time. So it's really like putting together that TV show. It's not just throwing up a camera and talking to it you know, from your home office. We have to think through it much more choreographed. Um, so very organized. They think through the details. Um, now, what about the opposite? What events that did not go well, and yeah. uh, what were the commonalities in those? Yeah, it was really, um, it was dry. Um, so you know, just some talking heads on a screen. Um, you know, maybe it's the the board chair and then the executive director talking. Um, clunky auctions. So we didn't invest in a platform that allowed us to have especially with hybrid events that allowed us to have live bidders and remote bidders. And I saw instances where the auctioneer sells something and, oh, wait a minute, no, you didn't win it. We had a remote bid. And uh, yeah, so that was, it was really just this not investing in the technology and learning how to use that technology, doing a test event, test auction beforehand, 
and then getting in front of not just your normal audience, but your even bigger online audience and kind of falling flat on your face with some type of snafu, typically tech-driven. Is, is Zoom not the better choice for virtual events? You know, there are, there are a lot of platforms out there. The majority of them actually use Zoom as the back end, oh. but they have a kind of a front face. Yeah. So it's good to let you wrap it. Uh, almost makes it feel like you're in a room. Um, I'm blanking on the name of the product right now, but there's one that they are using for the virtual conferences that we talked about that actually lets you like click on a map of where you want to go and the people that are there and you can kind of go and it's actually using breakout rooms, but it feels like you're going over to this cocktail table or this couch or this vendor booth. Um, it just kind of gives that, that front end, engaging front end experience. Yeah. So, I mean, I mentioned this on one of my other podcasts, but I'll bring it up again. Um, just for like, let everybody know what's coming down the tubes. And some of you might have younger kids. I have a, a, a 21 year old and a 13 year old, well, soon to be 13 year old. And so my 13 year old got a virtual headset, right? right? A VR headset. Uh, made by, yeah. <laughs> and so what, what's interesting is my, my older one, 21 year old, he got one two years ago or three years ago. And, you know, he didn't use it as much and he's a computer science guy um, because they just didn't have enough apps out for it. Well, now my, my second one got it. My 13, uh, soon to be 13 year old got it and he's on it all of the time. He loves it. And, and I can see how much fun he's having with it too. And so, you know, as as some of you may or may not know, Facebook, which is now uh, rebranding itself called, it's going to be called uh, meta um is uh owns that vr technology and they're coming out with virtual meeting rooms where you put the headset on and you you pick an avatar for yourself and you'll be sitting at a conference table let's say that's one one of the rooms it's coming <laughs> it's all coming right so i if you know it's just like when we went from phones that had no screen to phones that you know now are just unbelievable, right? You can do everything. If you don't adapt to those new phones, it's hard to make the leap. Uh, are, you, are you feeling the same thing? Yeah, it's coming, like it or not. Yeah, my son as well has, uh, it's my 11-year-old uh, has one, and he's, uh, I think it's some gorilla tag game. He's always, yeah. You know, yeah. That's it. More exercise with that thing than I think it does, you know, the whole day. It's like, great. Finally, we've solved that issue. But yeah, you know, if we're not going to experiment, I'll be honest, I haven't put the headset on yet, but I know yeah. I need to just I haven't done uh, it. get a sense of it. I and... did it two years ago. I haven't done it recently. So it's funny you said a grill game because I didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> and now I know. So thank you for telling me. That's how it's very engaged father. I could, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, no, it's it's fun to just sit there and watch them, the ridiculous movements they make. So um, that's a key. Um, the other thing I'll say with this, you know, a phrase I use all the time is personal preference does not equal fundraising best practice. Mm. Personal preference does not equal fundraising best practice. So what we like or what we want or the direction we think it should go, it doesn't matter. It's going. We have to kind of see where it's going 
and interpret that for our organization and our fundraising operation. I have another phrase I like to say, never PDF a fundraising plan. Don't make it permanent. You know, it needs to evolve. It needs to change. And I think the last two years have really shown us that, you know, you need to be looking at that every quarter, every month or so and seeing, you know, what's not working. And even more importantly, what are the new opportunities that have come out? Because the world is changing so fast. Yeah, I can see as an executive director where you're like, oh, I, you know, the planning part of these new events are, is so laborious. I just want to do the same one over and over and over again because we have the systems down, we have the processes down, and it produces, you know, good results, you know? Yeah. And I guess if you have that mindset, the problem is, is um, you might be missing out on better results and your results might start to degrade uh, right. because you're doing the same event uh, as well. Yeah, before all of this, I found that a, a typical fundraising event has about a five-year life cycle before, uh, you know, that law of diminishing returns starts kicking in and the people are tired of coming to it. It doesn't have that same buzz. I think it's even shorter now, you know, it might be two or three. Um, so yeah, that constant reinvention, what's new. Um, we don't have to throw the whole thing out, but how can we add a component, evolve, um, lighten it up, some, some new element that keep people excited. Let's take a scenario where you have a nonprofit that's a million dollars in revenue, right? Um, and I know you kind of say you do more libraries and those type of things, but um, the let's say you have a million dollar in revenue, and uh, and they're they're engaging you, Chad, to do to help them with a new fundraising campaign. How much consulting time? Do you think you work with that million dollar nonprofit to get that event going? Um, it's really less about hours for me and more about lead time. So um, I would much rather coach them for an hour or two a month for oh. nine to 18 months to really make sure we structure this the right way have ample time to solicit uh, sponsors, you know, versus the, hey, can we get, you know, 20 hours of your time in the next two months to throw this thing together? Um, yeah. That lead time is going to let them spend less and have a better end result um, and not drive the consultant crazy at the same time. So, and Is that usually the case that 90% of your, your engagements will be an hour or two every month? Uh, that's good. I, I like yeah. that idea. You know, because yeah, you... Yeah. You know, it also takes some time to get everything together too. Like, like you said, to get a sponsor, to implement the whole programs. And that's the value of a consultant or coach is that they've already done it. So I have a template or a sample for everything. You know, you're never starting from scratch on those calls. You know, there's then a follow-up list of five items that I'm immediately going to send somebody. And then, you know, they've just saved themselves, you know, an hour and a half there because it's already half done. They just have to adjust it for their organization. Um, I think this is going to be a, a, a leading and a, and a easy question to answer. Maybe we can go deeper into it. What makes a bad client for you? Like, in other words, they bring you on, they say, let's do two hours every single month. What makes a bad client? And I, I'll tell you what, what I think the first answer is going to be, and that is someone who doesn't do what they say they're, we're going to do, right? I think that's the most obvious one, right? Right. 
Yeah, for me, it's we have the call. You know, I get homework, things I'm going to send them. They get homework. We hop on the next month and we're at the same place. Yeah. Um, you know, they didn't do it. Something got in the way. And, and that's fine. It happens from time to time. But then the second month, we're at the same place. And I just hate that. I mean, they're wasting money. They're they're not getting the value. Um, I would much rather work with a demanding client that's showing up, has tough questions for me, is emailing me between calls with additional things, and we're really making progress. You know, I, I'm not doing this to to get rich. I'm doing this to save the help, save the world as well. You know, I was a frontline friend fundraiser for 20 years, and then I learned I just love teaching other people to fundraise even more than I love doing it myself. So that's what I want to do. So it's those people that really just don't take advantage of the opportunity that they have. What percentage of the time do you think that happens where you have someone who's just really they don't follow through. And even after the second call where you kind of, I don't want to use the word berate, but, but you're like, listen, you got to get these done. You got to get this done. Uh, what percentage of the time it's, it's people who just are unorganized. Yeah. I'd say that's half. It's either, um, it's really poor personal productivity skills. And I'm, uh, I'm a huge productivity nerd. So I love all that stuff. So sometimes at that point we'll pivot and say, okay, let's quit talking about fundraising. Let's get your workflow and style organized first. Let's make it so you have some bandwidth to actually deal with this. I'm shocked. And then the other half is just overwhelm. I mean, they're, they're organized, but they just have so much on their plate. Um, I have a running joke that every nonprofit uh, job description ever created has number nine other duties as assigned. Uh, and in some places it can be like 40% of the job. Um, when I worked in a museum, you know, if the person selling tickets didn't come in, one of us had to go sell tickets that day. Um, and then, you know, everything you had planned for that day just gets bumped. So I would assume now with that statistic of that about half of your clients, um, you have. I, I would think that more more of your engagement is not fundraising. It's training the executive director or whoever about how to run a nonprofit. Right. Yeah, that's there. Um, that's part of it. And sometimes I say, you know, a, a counseling degree would be helpful because sometimes people just have stuff on their life, you know, personal stress yeah. and stuff that just gets in the way and they just need to talk it out because they don't have anyone to talk it out to. And I get that coming as well. So uh, you, yeah. know, you, you never know what you're walking into and uh, every call is a little different and, you know, it keeps it fun, but sometimes I just feel for the situations that folks are in. Yeah. I had a business coach worked with me for nine years and I'm like you, I'm a productivity uh, guru. Right. And I just had her there uh, for, for two reasons. One of them was the, to hold me accountable, which she honestly didn't. That was the first part of the engagement, but that wasn't, really that necessary because I when when we said we were going to do something it got done and she you know but the second one was um uh this is for business so because I at uh, a couple of companies I had I didn't have a business partner so um you know the uh, the companies I have now I do and so I needed someone to be able to talk to your sounding board your sounding board right because I didn't really I couldn't you know do that with the people who work for me. And, um, and I, I, you know, I didn't exactly like doing that with my wife, 
you know, so, you know, I yeah, they get tired I, of it real fast. Well, and also she's not experienced in that. And then and the other thing is what I learned over the years this is irrelevant to this conversation, but I'll, I'll say it anyway. And that is, um, I think it's much better. What happens is what I see with people is they, all they talk about is their work with their spouse, you know, and that's what your marriage becomes. Mm. And I don't bring it home. So we have to find other things to talk about, which is, uh, which was, uh, which is great. You know, you have to be doing other things that are interesting and otherwise, as you know, running a nonprofit consumes your life, right? It will take whatever you give it. That's sure. right. It just absorbs it and absorbs it. And if you, if you let it, it just becomes, you know, your life and then you have nothing else. So, um, yeah. So some parting thoughts that you have for our listeners, Chad. Yeah, I would just really encourage folks to, you know, get off the sideline, take a look at your events. What did you do before COVID? What did you do during COVID? What are you doing now? Look at what's working, what worked best, what can be that mix, and really structure for the future of, okay, here's what we are going to do, and then gradually roll that out as you're able as it becomes, you know, effective. So, um, and I do have a free resource um, for folks um, that I'll point them to. I didn't create it, but um, other consultants and friends of mine, um, Jim Jim Anderson and Alice Ferris with Goldbusters Consulting, have this great evaluation sheet for new fundraising ideas. And I think it's a really good tool that can let you list your current events, list some ideas, and then you rank them on potential revenue, effort, likely success uniqueness and mission match. And those last two are really great. Uniqueness. Are we the only ones in our community doing this or is it a golf tournament like everyone does? Mm. And mission match. Does it make sense for us to do this based on the mission we serve? Is there some kind of connection that can really help people? So I can send you that link um, for show notes and what have you, but I think just taking the time to sit back, what has worked, what hasn't, what do we want to do? And getting a plan to revamp and re-engage these events rather than just re-emerge with the same old things we used to do. Yeah, what is the so, so uh, our listeners, what is the link? Yeah, so I will put that up. I can do productivefundraising.com slash event grid. So yes. event grid. Yeah. And in general, Chad, if people want to get a hold of you, how do they go about doing that? Yeah, you can do that at the same place. Just go to productive fundraising. Dot com. Uh, there's a contact link there. I do a free monthly webinar um, that's up there. Usually a good way to get a little more content from me, um, learn some more. That gets you tied into my email list, and then it kind of just all goes from there. But um, ProductiveFundraising.com, definitely the gotcha. best way to uh, connect. Well, it's good stuff. I would like to thank so very much Chad Barger from Productive Fundraising for coming on today's podcast if you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend and also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. The Nonprofit MBA podcast has become extremely popular and it's because of great guests like Chad. I mean, it, I'm so proud of the podcast. This is our fourth year. I think this is like our 80th episode. If you listen to every single one of these podcasts, I guarantee you, not only will you be more energized, but you're just going to get some great, great ideas. If you, like, uh, if you like today's podcast, please give us a review on your podcasting app. 
to help us get the word out. And of course, if you're looking for a line of credit for your nonprofit, you can call us at 862-207-4118 or visit our website at nonprofitmbapodcast.com. I say this at, at every podcast at the end. I want to thank all of our listeners out there for making the world a better place. You guys are on the front line. You're doing all the hard work. You guys are doing, a, a, you know, really all the, you know, everything that's very appreciative. We all need to do our part. Chad and I, we need to do our part. We all need to be better people. It takes one person at a time to make the world a better place. And I want to thank our listeners for really, you know, I know you do this uh, type of work because you want to make the world a better place and you are. So thank you. Also on that, make sure you take some time for yourself. You deserve it. Um, everybody, it's a new year. Get out there. Try to spend some time outside regardless of the weather. And uh, have a great day. 